George Orwell's Homage to Catalonia. Chapter 10. About midday on May 3rd, the friend crossing the lounge of the hotel said casually, There's been some kind of trouble at the telephone exchange, I hear. For some reason, I paid no attention to it at the time. That afternoon, between three and four, I was halfway down the rhombus when I heard several rifle shots behind me. I turned round and saw some youths with rifles in their hands and the red and black handkerchiefs of the anarchists round their throats, edging up a side street that ran off the rhombus northward. They were evidently exchanging shots with someone in a tall octagonal tower a church, I think, that commanded the side street. I thought instantly, it started. But I thought it without any very great feeling of surprise. For days past, everyone had been expecting it to start at any moment. I realized that I must get back to the hotel at once and see if my wife was all right. But the knot of anarchists round the opening of the side street were motioning the people back and shouting to them not to cross the line of fire. More shots rang out. The bolts from the tower were flying across the street, and a crowd of panic-stricken people was rushing down the rhombus away from the firing. Up and down the street you could hear snap, snap, snap as the shopkeepers slammed the steel shutters over their windows. I saw two popular army officers retreating cautiously from tree to tree with their hands and their revolvers. In front of me the crowd was surging into the metro station in the middle of the rhombus to take cover. I immediately decided not to follow them. It might mean being trapped underground for hours. At this moment, an American doctor who had been with us at the front ran up to me and grabbed me by the arm. He was greatly excited. Come on, we must get down to the Hotel Falcon. The Hotel Falcon was a sort of boarding house maintained by the POUM and used chiefly by militiamen on leave. The POUM chaps will be meeting there. The trouble's starting. We must hang together. But what the devil is it all about, I said. The doctor was hauling me along by the arm. He was too excited to give a very clear statement. It appeared that he had been in the Plaza de Cataluna when several lorry loads of armed civil guards had driven up to the telephone exchange, which was operated mainly by C&T workers, and made a sudden assault upon it. Then some anarchists had arrived, and there had been a general affray. I gathered that the trouble earlier in the day had been a demand by the government to hand over the telephone exchange, which, of course, was refused. As we moved down the street, a lorry raced past us from the opposite direction. It was full of anarchists with rifles in their hands. In front, a ragged youth was lying on a pile of mattresses behind a light machine gun. When we got to the Hotel Falcon, which was at the bottom of the Rhombus, a crowd of people was seething in the entrance hall. There was a great confusion. Nobody seemed to know what we were expected to do, and nobody was armed except for the handful of shock troopers who usually acted as guards for the building. I went across to the Comité Local of the POUM, which was almost opposite. Upstairs, in the room where militiamen normally went to draw their pay, another crowd was seething. A tall, pale, rather handsome man of about thirty, in civilian clothes, was trying to restore order and handing out belts and cartridge boxes from a pile in the corner. There seemed to be no rifles as yet. The doctor disappeared, I believe there had already been casualties in the call for doctors, but another Englishman had arrived. Presently, from an inner office, the tall man and some others began bringing out armfuls of rifles and handing them round. The other Englishman and myself, as foreigners, were slightly under suspicion, and at first nobody would give us a rifle. Then a militiaman whom I had known at the front arrived and recognized me, after which we were given rifles and a few clips of cartridges, somewhat grudgingly. There was the sound of firing in the distance, and the streets were completely empty of people. Everyone said that it was impossible to go up to the Robles. The civil guards had seized buildings and commanding positions and were letting fly at everyone who passed. I would have risked it and gone back to the hotel, but there was a vague idea floating around that the Comité Local was likely to be attacked at any moment and we had better stand by. All over the building, on the stairs, on the pavement outside, small knots of people were standing and talking excitedly. No one seemed to have a very clear idea of what was happening. All I could gather was that the civil guards had attacked the telephone exchange and seized various strategic spots that commanded other buildings belonging to the workers. 
There was a general impression that the civil guards were after the CNT and the working class generally. It was noticeable that at this stage, no one seemed to put the blame on the government. The poorer classes in Barcelona looked upon the civil guards as something rather resembling the black and tans, and it seemed to be taken for granted that they had started this attack on their own initiative. Once I heard how things stood, I felt easier in my mind. The issue was clear enough. On one side, the CNT. On the other side, the police. I have no particular love for the idealized worker as he appears in the bourgeois communist mind, but when I see an actual flesh-and-blood worker in conflict with his natural enemy, the police, I do not have to ask myself which side I am on. A long time passed, and nothing seemed to be happening at our end of the town. It did not occur to me that I could ring up the hotel and find out whether my wife was all right. I took it for granted that the telephone exchange would have stopped working, though as a matter of fact it was only out of action for a couple of hours. There seemed to be about 300 people in the two buildings. Predominantly, there were people of the poorer class, from the back streets down by the Keys. There was a number of women among them, some of them carrying babies, and a crowd of little ragged boys. I fancy that many of them had no notion of what was happening, and had simply fled into the POUM buildings for protection. There was also a number of militiamen on leave, and a sprinkling of foreigners. As far as I could estimate, there were only about 60 rifles between the lot of us. The upstairs office was ceaselessly besieged by a crowd of people who were demanding rifles and being told that there were none left. The younger militia boys, who seemed to regard the whole affair as a kind of picnic, were prowling round and trying to wheel or steal rifles from anyone who had them. It was not long before one of them got my rifle away from me by a clever dodge and immediately made himself scarce. So I was unarmed again, except for my tiny automatic pistol, for which I only had one clip of cartridges. It grew dark. I was getting hungry and seemingly there was no food in the Falcon. My friend and I slipped out to his hotel, which was not far away, to get some dinner. The streets were utterly dark and silent, not a soul stirring, steel shutters drawn over all the shop windows, but no barricades built yet. There was a great fuss before they led us into the hotel, which was locked and barred. When we got back, I learned that the telephone exchange was working and went to the telephone in the office upstairs to ring my wife. Characteristically, there was no telephone directory in the building, and I did not know the number of the Hotel Continental. After searching from room to room for about an hour, I came upon a guidebook which gave me the number. I could not make contact with my wife, but I managed to get a hold of John McNair, the ILP representative in Barcelona. He told me that all was well, nobody had been shot, and asked me if we were all right at the Comité Local. I said that we should be all right if we had some cigarettes. I meant this only as a joke. Nevertheless, half an hour later, McNair appeared with two packets of Lucky Strike. He had braved the pitch-dark streets roamed by anarchist patrols who had twice stopped him at pistols point and examined his papers. I shall not forget this small act of heroism. We were very glad of the cigarettes. They had placed armed guards at most of the windows, and in the street below, a little group of shock troopers were stopping and questioning the few passers-by. An anarchist patrol drove up, bristling with weapons. Beside the driver, a beautiful dark-haired girl of about eighteen was nursing a submachine gun across her knees. I spent a long time wandering about the building, a great rambling place of which it was impossible to learn the geography. Everywhere was the usual litter, the broken furniture and torn paper that seemed to be the inevitable products of revolution. All over the place, people were sleeping, on a broken sofa and a passage, two poor women from the quayside were peacefully snoring. The place had been a cabaret theater before the POUM took it over. There were several raised stages in several of the rooms. On one of them was a desolate grand piano. Finally, I discovered what I was looking for, the armory. 
I did not know how this affair was going to turn out, and I badly wanted a weapon. I had heard it said so often that all the rival parties, PSUC, POUM, and CNT, FAI alike, were hoarding arms in Barcelona, but I could not believe that two of the principal POUM buildings contained only the fifty or sixty rifles that I had seen. The room which acted as an armory was unguarded and had a flimsy door. Another Englishman and myself had no difficulty in prizing it open. When we got inside, we found what they had told us was true. There were no more weapons. All we found there were about two dozen small-bore rifles of an obsolete pattern and a few shotguns with no cartridges for any of them. I went up to the office and asked if they had any spare pistol ammunition. They had none. There were a few boxes of bombs, however, which one of the anarchist patrol cars had brought us. I put a couple in one of my cartridge boxes. They were a crude type of bomb, ignited by rubbing a sort of match at the top and very liable to go off of their own accord. People were sprawling asleep all across the floor. In one room, a baby was crying, crying ceaselessly. Though this was May, the night was getting cold. On one of the cabaret stages, the curtains were still up, so I ripped a curtain down with my knife, rolled myself up in it, and had a few hours sleep. My sleep was disturbed, I remember, by the thought of those beastly bombs which might blow me into the air if I rolled on them too vigorously. At three in the morning, a tall, handsome man, who seemed to be in command, woke me up, gave me a rifle, and put me on guard at one of the windows. He told me that Salas, the chief of police, responsible for the attack on the telephone exchange, had been placed under arrest. Actually, as we learned later, he had only been deprived of his post. Nevertheless, the news confirmed the general impression that the civil guards had acted without orders. As soon as it was dawn, the people downstairs began building two barricades, one outside the Comité Local and the other beside, outside the Hotel Falcon. The Barcelona streets are paved with square cobbles, easily built up into a wall, and under the cobbles is a kind of shingle that is good for spilling sandbags. The building of those barricades was a strange and wonderful sight. I would have given something to be able to photograph it. With the kind of passionate energy that Spaniards display when they have definitely decided to begin upon any job of work, long lines of men, women, and quite small children were tearing up the cobblestones, hauling them along in a handcart that had been found somewhere, and staggering to and fro under heavy sacks of sand. In the doorway of the Comité Local, a German-Jewish girl in a pair of militiamen's trousers, whose knee buttons just reached her ankles, was watching with a smile. In a couple of hours, the barricades were head-high, with riflemen po posted at the loopholes, and behind one barricade, a fire was burning, and men were frying eggs. They had taken my rifle away, again, and there seemed to be nothing that one could usefully do. Another Englishman and myself decided to go back to the Hotel Continental. There was a lot of firing in the distance, but seemingly none in the Rambles. On the way up, we looked in at the food market. Very few stalls had opened. They were besieged by a crowd of people from the working-class quarters south of the Rambles. Just as we got there, there was a heavy crash of rifle fire outside. Some panes of glass in the roof were shivered, and the crowd went flying for the back exits. A few stalls remained open, however. We managed to get a cup of coffee each and buy a wedge of goat's milk cheese, which I tucked in beside my bombs. A few days later, I was very glad of that cheese. At the street corner where I had seen the anarchists begin firing the day before, the barricade was now standing. The man behind it, I was on the other side of the street, shouted to me to be careful. The civil guards in the church tower were firing indiscriminately at everyone who passed. I paused and then crossed the opening at a run. Sure enough, a bullet cracked past me and comfortably close. When I neared the POUM executive building, still on the other side of the road, there were fresh shouts of warning from some shock troopers standing in the doorway, shouts which, at the moment, I did not understand. 
there were trees and a newspaper kiosk between myself and the building. Streets of this type in Spain had a broad walk running down the middle, and I could not see what they were pointing at. I went up to the Continental, made sure that all was well, washed my face, and then went back to the POUM Executive Building. It was about a hundred yards down the street to ask for orders. By this time, the roar of rifle and machine gun fire from various directions was almost comparable to the din of battle. I had just found Cobb and was asking him what we were supposed to do when there was a series of appalling crashes down below. The din was so loud that I made sure someone must be firing at us with a field gun. Actually, it was only hand grenades, which make double their usual noise when they burst among stone buildings. Cobb glanced out the window, cocked his stick behind his neck, said, Let us investigate, and strolled down the stairs in his usual unconcerned manner. I just followed. Just inside the doorway, a group of shock troopers were bowling bombs down the pavement as though playing skittles. The bombs were bursting twenty yards away with a frightful, ear-splitting crash which was mixed up with the banging of rifles. Half across the street from behind the newspaper kiosk, ahead, it was the head of an American militiaman whom I knew well, was sticking up for all the world like a coconut at a fair. It was only afterwards that I gr- grasped what was really happening. Next door to the POUM building, there was a cafe with a hotel above it, called Cafe Mocha. The day before, twenty or thirty armed civil guards had entered the cafe, and then, when the fighting started, had suddenly seized the building and barricaded themselves in. Presumably, they had been ordered to seize the cafe as a preliminary to attacking the POUM offices later. Early in the morning, they had attempted to come out, shots had been exchanged, and one shock trooper was badly wounded and the civil guard killed. The civil guards had fled back into the cafe, but when the American came down the street, they had opened fire on him, though he was not armed. The American had flung himself behind the kiosk for cover, and the shock troopers were flinging bombs at the civil guards to drive them indoors again. Kopp took in the scene at a glance, pushed his way forward, and hauled back a red-haired German shock trooper who was just drawing the pin out of a bomb with his teeth. He shouted to everyone to stand back from the doorway and told us in several languages that we had got to avoid bloodshed. Then he stepped out onto the pavement and, in the set of civil guards, ostentatiously took off his pistol and laid it on the ground. Two Spanish militia officers did the same, and the three of them walked slowly up to the doorway where the civil guards were huddling. It was a thing I would not have done for twenty pounds. They were walking, unarmed, up to men who were frightened out of their wits and had loaded guns in their hands. The civil guard in shirt sleeves and livid with fright came out of the door to parley with Cop. He kept pointing in an agitated manner at two unexploded bombs that were lying on the pavement. Cop came back and told us we had better touch the bombs off. Lying there, they were danger to anyone who passed. A shock trooper fired his rifle at one of the bombs and burst it, and then fired at the other and missed. I asked him to give me his rifle, knelt down, and let fly the second bomb. I also missed it, I am sorry to say. This was the only shot I fired during the disturbances. The pavement was covered with broken glass from the sign over the Café Milka and two cars that were parked outside. One of them, Cop's official car, had been riddled with bullets and their windscreens smashed by bursting bombs. Cop took me upstairs again and explained the situation. We had got to defend the POUM buildings if they were attacked, but the POUM leaders had sent instructions that we were to stand on the defensive and not open fire if we could possibly avoid it. Immediately opposite, there was a cinematograph called the Polyaroma, which with a museum above it, and at the top, high above the general level of the roofs, a small observatory with twin domes. The domes commanded the street, and a few men posted up there with rifles could prevent any attack on the POU on buildings. The caretakers at the cinema were CNT members and would let us come and go. As for the civil guards in the Café Mocha, there would be no trouble with them. 
They did not want to fight, and would be only too glad to live and let live. Cop repeated that our orders were not to fire unless we were fired on ourselves, or our buildings attacked. I gathered, though we did not say so, that the POUM leaders were furious at being dragged into this affair, but felt that they had got to stand by the CNT. They had already placed guards in the observatory. The next three days and nights I spent continuously on the roof of the Poliorama, except for brief intervals when I slipped across the hotel for meals. I was in no danger. I suffered from nothing worse than hunger and boredom. Yet it was one of the most unbearable periods of my whole life. I think few experiences could be more sickening, more disillusioning, or finally more nerve-wracking than those evil days of street warfare. I used to sit on the roof, marveling at the folly of it all. From the little windows in the observatory, you could see for miles around vista after vista of tall, slender buildings, glass domes, and fantastic curly roofs with brilliant green and copper tiles. Over to eastward, in the glimmering pale blue sea, the first glimpse of the sea that I had had since coming to Spain. And the whole huge town of a million people was locked in a sort of violent inertia, a nightmare of noise without movement. The sunlit streets were quite empty. Nothing was happening except the streaming of bullets from barricades in the sandbagged windows. Not a vehicle was stirring in the streets. Here and there along the rhombus, the trams stood motionless for their drivers had jumped out of them when the fighting started. And all the while, the devilish noise echoing from thousands of stone buildings went on and on like a tropical rainstorm. Crack, crack, rattle, rattle, roar. Sometimes it died away to a few shots, sometimes it quickened to a deafening fusillade, but it never stopped while daylight lasted. And punctually next dawn, it started again. What the devil was happening? Who was fighting whom? Who was winning? It was at first very difficult to discover. The people of Barcelona are so used to street fighting and so familiar with the local geography that they knew by a kind of instinct which political party will hold which streets and which buildings. A foreigner is at a hopeless disadvantage. Looking at from the observatory, I could grasp that the Rambles, which is one of the principal streets of the town, formed a dividing line. To the right of the Rambles, the working-class quarters were solid, solidly anarchist. To the left, a confused fight was going on among the tortuous by-streets, but on that side the PSUC and the Civil Guards were more or less in control. Up at our end of the Rambles, around the Plaza de Cataluna, the position was so complicated that it would have been quite unintelligible if every building had not flown a party flag. The principal landmark was the Hotel Colón, the headquarters of the PSUC, dominating the Plaza de Cataluna. In a window near the last O, but one in the huge Hotel Colón that sprawled across its face, they had a machine gun that could sweep the square with deadly effect. A hundred yards to the right of us down the Rambles, the JSU, the Youth League of the PSUC, corresponding to the Young Communist League in England, were holding a big department store whose sandbagged side windows fronted our observatory. They had hauled down their red flag and hoisted the Catalan national flag. On the telephone exchange, the starting point of all the trouble, the Catalan national flag and the anarchist flag were flying side by side. Some kind of temporary compromise had been arrived at there, but the exchange was working uninterruptedly and there was no firing from the building. In our position, it was strangely peaceful. The civil guards in the Café Mocha had drawn down the steel curtains and piled up the café furniture to make a barricade. Later, a half dozen of them came onto the roof, opposite to ourselves, and built another barricade of mattresses over which they hung a Catalan national flag. But it was obvious they had no wish to start a fight. Cop had made a definite agreement with them. If they did not fire at us, 
we would not fire at them. He had grown quite friendly with the civil guards by this time, and had been to visit them several times in the Café Milka. Naturally, they had looted everything drinkable in the, the café possessed, and they made Cop a present of fifteen bottles of beer. In return, Cop had actually given them one of our rifles to make up for one they had somehow lost on the previous day. Nevertheless, it was a queer feeling sitting on that roof. Sometimes I was merely bored with the whole affair, paid no attention to the hellish noise, and spent hours reading a succession of Penguin Library books, which, luckily, I had bought a few days earlier. Sometimes I was very conscious of the armed men watching me fifty yards away. It was a little like being in the trenches again. Several times I caught myself, from force of habit, speaking of the civil guards as the fascists. There were generally about six of us up there. We placed a man on guard in each of the observatory towers, and the rest of us sat on the lead roof below, where there was no cover except a stone palisade. I was well aware that any moment the civil guards might receive telephone orders to open fire, they had agreed to give us warning before doing so, but there was no certainty that they would keep their agreement. Only once, however, did trouble look like starting. One of the civil guards opposite knelt down and began firing across the barricade. I was on guard in the observatory at the time. I trained my rifle on him and shouted across, Hi, don't you shoot at us. What? Don't you fire at us, or we'll fire back. No, no, I wasn't firing at you. Look down there. He motioned with his rifle toward the side street that ran past the bottom of our building. Sure enough, the youth in blue overalls with a rifle in his hand was dodging around the corner. Evidently, he had just taken a shot at the civil guards in the roof. I was firing at him. He fired first. I believe this was true. We don't want to shoot you. We're only workers, the same as you are. He made the anti-fascist salute, which I returned. I shouted across, Have you got any more beer left? No, it's all gone. The same day, for no apparent reason, a man in the JSU building further down the street, suddenly raised his rifle and let fly at me when I was leaning out of my window. Perhaps I made a tempting mark. I did not fire back. Though he was only a hundred yards away, the bullet went so wide that it did not even hit the roof of the observatory. As usual, Spanish standards of marksmanship had saved me. I was fired at several times from this building. The devilish racket of firing went on and on, but so far as I could see and from all I heard, the fighting was defensive on both sides. People simply remained in their buildings or behind their barricades and blazed away at the people opposite. About half a mile away from us, there was a street where some of the main offices of the CNT and the UGT were almost exactly facing one another. From that direction, the volume of noise was terrific. I passed down that street the day after the fighting was over, and the, pan the panes of the shop windows were like sieves. Most of the shopkeepers in Barcelona had their windows crisscrossed with strips of paper so that when a bullet hit a pane, it did not shiver to pieces. Sometimes the rattle of the rifle and machine gun fire was punctuated by the crash of hand grenades. At long intervals, perhaps a dozen times in all, there were tremendously heavy explosions which at the time I could not account for. They sounded like aerial bombs, but that was impossible, for there were no airplanes about. I was told afterwards, quite possibly it was true, that agents provocateur were touching off masses of explosives in order to increase the general noise and panic. There was, however, no artillery fire. I was listening for this. For if the guns began to fire, it would mean that the affair was becoming serious. Artillery is a determining factor in street warfare. Afterwards, there were wild tales in the newspaper about batteries of guns firing in the streets, but no one was able to point to a building that had been hit by a shell. In any case, the sound of gunfire is unmistakable if one is used to it. Almost from the start, food was running short. With difficulty and under cover of darkness, for the civil guards were constantly sniping into the rumblas, 
Food was brought from the Hotel Falcon for the 15 or 20 militiamen who were in the POUM executive buildings. But there were barely enough to go around, and as many of us as possible went to the Hotel Continental for our meals. The Continental had been collectivized by the General Light, and not, like most of the hotels, by the C&T or UGT, and it was regarded as neutral ground. No sooner had the fighting started than the hotel filled to the brim with the most extraordinary collection of people. There were foreign journalists, political suspects of every shade, and American airmen in the service of the government, various communist agents, including a fat, sinister-looking Russian said to be an agent of the Agpu, who was nicknamed Charlie Chan, and wore attached to his waistband a revolver and a neat little bomb. Some families of well-to-do Spaniards who looked like fascist sympathizers, two or three wounded men from the international column, a gang of lorry drivers from some huge French lorries which had been carrying a load of oranges back to France and had been held up by the fighting, and a number of popular army officers. The popular army, as a body, remained neutral throughout the fighting, though a few soldiers slipped away from the barracks and took part as individuals. On the Tuesday morning, I had seen a couple of them at the POUM barricades. At the beginning, before the food shortage became acute and the newspapers began stirring up hatred, there was a tendency to regard the whole affair as a joke. This was the kind of thing that happened every year in Barcelona, people were saying. George Tioli, an Italian journalist, a great friend of ours, came in with his trousers drenched in blood. He had gone out to see what was happening and had been binding up a wounded man on the pavement when someone playfully tossed a hand grenade at him, fortunately not wounding him seriously. I remember his remarking that the Barcelona paving stones ought to be numbered. It would save such a lot of trouble in building and demolishing barricades. And I remember a couple of men from the international column sitting in my room at the hotel when I came in, tired, hungry, and dirty after a night on guard. Their attitude was completely neutral. If they'd been good party men, they would, I suppose, have urged me to change sides, or even opinioned me and taken away the bombs of which my pockets were full. Instead, they merely commiserated with me for having to spend my leave and doing guard duty on a roof. The general attitude was, this is only a dust-up between the anarchists and the police. It doesn't mean anything. In spite of the extent of the fighting and the number of casualties, I believe, this was nearer to the truth than the official version which represented the affairs of planned rising. It was about Wednesday, May 5th, that a change seemed to come over things. The shuttered streets looked ghastly. A very few pedestrians, forced abroad for one reason or another, crept to and fro, flourishing white handkerchiefs, and at a spot in the middle of the rhombus that was safe from bullets, some men were crying newspapers to the empty street. On Tuesday... Solidaridad Obrera, the anarchist paper, had described the attack on the telephone exchange as a monstrous provocation, or words to that effect. But on Tuesday it changed its tune and began imploring everyone to go back to work. The anarchist leaders were broadcasting the same message. The office of La Bataille, the POUM paper, which was not defended, had been raided and seized by the civil guards at about the same time as the telephone exchange. But the paper was being printed and a few copies distributed from another address. I urged everyone to remain at the barricades. People were divided in their minds and wondering uneasily how the devil this was going to end. I doubt whether anyone left the barricades as yet, but everyone was sick of the meaningless fighting which could obviously lead to no real decision because no one wanted this to develop into a full-sized civil war which might mean men losing the war against Franco. I heard this fear expressed on all sides. So far as one could gather from what people were saying at the time, the CNT rank and file wanted and had wanted from the beginning only two things the handing back of the telephone exchange, and the disarming of the hated civil guards. If the General Light had promised to do these two things, and also promised to put an end to the food profiteering, there is little doubt that the barricades would have been down in two hours. But it was obvious that the General Light was not going to give in. 
ugly rumors were flying around. It was said that the Valencia government was sending 6,000 men to occupy Barcelona, and that 5,000 anarchist and POUM troops had left the Aragon front to oppose them. Only the first of these rumors was true. Watching from the observatory tower, we saw low gray shapes of warships coming in upon the harbor. Douglas Moyle, who had been a sailor, said that they looked like British destroyers. As a matter of fact, they were British destroyers, though we did not learn this till afterwards. That evening, we heard that on the Plaza de España, 400 civil guards had surrendered and handed their arms to the anarchists. Also, the news was vaguely filtering through that in the suburbs, mainly working-class quarters, the CNT were in control. It looked as though we were winning. But the same evening, cops sent for me, and, with a grave face, told me that according to the information he had just received, the government was about to outlaw the POUM and declare a state of war upon it. The news gave me a shock. It was the first glimpse I had of the interpretation that was likely to be put upon this affair later on. I dimly foresaw that when the fighting ended, the entire blame would be laid upon the POUM, which was the weakest party and therefore the most suitable scapegoat. And meanwhile, our local neutrality was at an end. If the government declared war upon us, we had no choice but to defend ourselves. And here at the executive building, we could be certain that the civil guards next door would get orders to attack us. Our only choice was to attack them first. The cop was waiting for orders on the telephone. If we heard definitely that the POUM was outlawed, we must make preparations at once to seize the Café Milka. I remember the long, nightmarish evening that we spent in fortifying the building. We locked the steel curtains across the front entrance, and behind them built a barricade of slabs of stone left behind by workmen who had been making some alterations. We went over our stock of weapons. Counting the six rifles that were on the roof of the polyorama opposite, we had twenty-one rifles, one of them defective, about fifty rounds of ammunition for each rifle, and a few dozen bombs. Otherwise, nothing except a few pistols and revolvers. About a dozen men, mostly Germans, had volunteered for the attack on the Café Milka that came off. We should attack from the roof, of course, sometime in the small hours, and take them by surprise. They were more numerous, but our morale was better. And no doubt we could storm the place, though people were bound to be killed in doing so. We had no food in the building except a few slabs of chocolate, and the rumor had gone round that they were going to cut off the water supply. Nobody knew who they were. It might be the government that controlled the waterworks, it might be the CNT, nobody knew. We spent a long time filling up every basin in the lavatories, every bucket which we could lay hands on, and finally the fifteen beer bottles now empty which the civil guards had given to come. I was in a ghastly frame of mind and dog-tired after about sixty hours without much sleep. It was now late into the night. People were sleeping all over the floor behind the barricade downstairs. Upstairs there was a small room with a sofa in it, which we intended to use as a dressing station, though, needless to say, we, found, we discovered there was neither iodine nor bandages in the building. My wife had come down from the hotel in case a nurse should be needed. I lay down on the sofa, feeling that I should like half an hour's rest before the attack in the mocha, in which I should presumably be killed. I remember the intolerable discomfort caused by my pistol, which, I, which was strapped to my belt and sticking to the small of my back. And the next thing I remember is waking up with a jerk to find my wife standing beside me. It was broad daylight, nothing had happened, the government had not declared war on the POUM, the water had not been cut off, and except for the sporadic firing in the streets, everything was normal. My wife said that she had not the heart to wake me and had slept in an armchair in one of the front rooms. That afternoon, there was a kind of armistice. The firing died away, and with surprising suddenness, the streets filled with people. A few shops began to pull up their shutters, 
and the market was packed with a huge crowd clamoring for food, though the stalls were almost empty. It was noticeable, however, that the trams did not start running. The civil guards were still behind their barricades in the Milka. On either side were the fortified buildings evacuated. Everyone was rushing around trying to buy food, and on every side you heard the same anxious questions. Do you think it stopped? Do you think it's going to start again? It, the fighting, was now thought of as some kind of natural calamity like a hurricane or an earthquake which was happening to us all alike, and which we had no power of stopping. And sure enough, almost immediately, I suppose there must really have been several hours of truce, but they seemed more like minutes than hours. A sudden crash of rifle fire, like a June cloud burst, sent everything scurrying. The steel shutters snapped into place, the streets emptied like magic, the barricades were manned, and it had started again. I went back to my post on the roof with a feeling of concentrated disgust and fury. When you are taking part in events like these, you are, I suppose, in a small way making history, and you ought, by rights, to feel like a historical character. But you never do, because at such times the physical details always outweigh everything else. Throughout the fighting, I never made the correct analysis of the situation that was so glibly made by journalists hundreds of miles away. What I was chiefly thinking about was not the rights and wrongs of this miserable internist and scrap, but simply the discomfort and boredom of sitting day and night in that intolerable roof and the hunger which was growing worse and worse, for none of us had a proper meal since Monday. It was in my mind all the while that I should have to go back to the front as soon as this business was over. It was infuriating. I had been 115 days in the line and had come back to Barcelona ravenous for a bit of rest and comfort, and instead I had to spend my time sitting on a roof opposite civil guards as bored as myself who periodically waved to me and assured me that they were workers, meaning they hoped I would not shoot them, but who would certainly open fire if they got the order to do so. If this was history, it did not feel like it. It was more like a bad period at the front, when men were short and we had to do abnormal hours of guard duty. Instead of being heroic, one just had to stay at one's post, bored, dropping with sleep, and completely uninterested as to what it was all about. Inside the hotel, among the heterogeneous mob, who for the most part had dared to put their noses out of doors, a horrible atmosphere of suspicion had grown up. Various people were infected with spy mania and were creeping around, whispering that everyone was a spy of the communists or the Trotskyists or the anarchists or whatnot. The fat Russian agent was cornering all the foreign refugees in turn and explaining plausibly that this whole affair was an anarchist plot. I watched him with some interest, for it was the first time that I had seen a person whose profession was telling lies, unless one counts journalists. There was something repulsive in the parody of a smart hotel life that was still going on behind shuttered windows amid the rattle of rifle fire. The front dining room had been abandoned after a bullet came through the window and chipped a pillar, and the guests were crowded into a darkish room at the back where there were never quite enough tables to go around. The waiters were reduced in numbers. Some of them were CNT members and had joined in the general strike and had dropped their boiled shirts for the time being. The meals were still being served with the pretense of ceremony. There was, however, practically nothing to eat. On that Thursday night, the principal dish at dinner was one sardine each. The hotel had had no bread for days, and even the wine was running so low that we were drinking older and older wines at higher and higher prices. The shortage of food went on for several days after the fighting was over. Three days running, I remember, my wife and I breakfasted it off a piece of goat's milk cheese with no bread and nothing to drink. The only thing that was plentiful was oranges. 
the French lorry drivers brought quantities of their oranges into the hotel. They were a tough-looking bunch. They had with them some flashy Spanish girls and a huge porter in a black blouse. At any other time, the little snob of the hotel manager would have done his best to make them uncomfortable. In fact, would have refused them to have them on the premises. But at present, they were popular because, unlike the rest of us, they had a private store of bread, which everyone was trying to catch from them. I spent that final night on the roof, and the next day it really did look as though the fighting was coming to an end. I do not think there was much firing that day, Friday. No one seemed to know for certain whether the troops from Valencia were really coming. They arrived that evening, as a matter of fact. The government was broadcasting half-soothing, half-threatening messages asking everyone to go home and saying that after a certain hour, anyone found carrying arms would be arrested. Not much attention was paid to the government's broadcast, but everywhere the people were fading away from the barricades. I have no doubt that it was mainly the people's food shortage that was responsible. From every side, you heard the same remark, We have no more food. We must go back to work. On the other hand, the civil guards, who could count on getting their rations so long as there was any food in the town, were able to stay at their posts. By the afternoon, the streets were almost normal, though the deserted barricades were still standing. The rhombos were thronged with people, the shops nearly all open, and, most reassuring of all, the trams that had stood so long in frozen blocks jerked into motion and began running. The civil guards were still holding the Café Milka and had not taken down their barricades, but some of them brought chairs out and sat in the pavement with their rifles across their knees. I winked at one of them as I went past, and got a not-unfriendly grin. He recognized me, of course. Over the telephone exchange, the anarchist flag had been hauled down and only the Catalan flag was flying. That meant that the workers were definitely beaten. I realized, though, owing to my political ignorance, not so clearly as I ought to have done, that when the government felt more sure of itself, there would be reprisals. But at the time, I was not interested in that aspect of things. All I felt was a profound relief that the devilish din of firing was over, and that one could buy some food and had a bit of rest and peace before going back to the front. It must have been late that evening that the troops from Valencia first appeared in the streets. There were the assault guards, another formation similar to the civil guards in the Carabineros, i.e. a formation intended primarily for police work, and the picked troops of the Republic. Quite suddenly, they seemed to spring up out of the ground. You saw them everywhere, patrolling the streets in groups of ten, tall men in gray or blue uniforms with long rifles slung across their shoulders and a submachine gun to each group. Meanwhile, there was a delicate job to be done. The six rifles, which we had used for the guard in the observatory towers, were still lying there, and by hook or by crook, we had got to get them back to the PLUN building. It was only a question of getting them across the street. They were part of the regular armory of the building, but to bring them into the street was to contravene the government's order. And if we were caught with them in our hands, we should certainly be arrested. Worse, the rifles would be confiscated. With only twenty-one rifles in the building, we could not afford to lose six of them. After a lot of discussion as to the best method, the red-haired Spanish boy and myself began to smuggle them out. It was easy enough to dodge the assault guard patrols. The danger was the civil guards in the Milka, who were well aware that we had rifles in the observatory and might give the show away if they saw us carrying them across. Each of us partially undressed and slung a rifle over the left shoulder, the butt under the armpit, the barrel down the trouser leg. It was unfortunate they were long mausers. Even a man as tall as I am cannot wear a long mauser down his trouser leg without discomfort. It was an intolerable job getting down the corkscrew stair of the observatory with a completely rigid left leg. Once in the street, we found the only way to move was with extreme slowness, so slowly that you did not have to bend your knees. 
Outside the picture house, I saw a group of people staring at me with great interest as they crept along at tortoise speed. I have often wondered what they thought was the matter with me. Wounded in the war, perhaps? However, all the rifles were smuggled across that incident. Next day, the assault guards were everywhere, blocking the streets like conquerors. There was no doubt that the government was simply making a display of force in order to overawe a population which it already knew would not resist. If there had been any real fear of further outbreaks, the assault guards would have been kept in barracks, not scattered through the streets in small bands. They were splendid troops, much the best I had seen in Spain, and though I suppose they were in a sense the enemy, I could not help liking the look of them. But it was with a sort of amazement that I watched them strolling to and fro. I was used to the ragged, scarcely armed militia on the Aragon front, and I had not known that the Republic possessed troops like these. It was not only that they were picked men physically, it was their weapons that most astonished me. All of them were armed with brand new rifles of the type known as the Russian Rifle. These rifles were sent to Spain by the USSR, but were, I believe, manufactured in America. I examined one of them. It was a far from perfect rifle, but vastly better than the dreadful old blunderbusses we had at the front. The assault guards had one submachine gun between ten men and an automatic pistol each. We at the front had approximately one machine gun between fifty men. And as for pistols and revolvers, you could only procure them illegally. As a matter of fact, though I had not noticed it till now, it was the same everywhere. The civil guards and the carabineros, who were not intended for the front at all, were better armed and far better clad than ourselves. I suspect it is the same in all wars. Always the same contrast between the sleek police in the rear and the ragged soldiers in the line. On the whole, the assault guards got on very well with the population after the first day or two. On the first day, there was a certain amount of trouble because some of the assault guards, acting on instructions, I suppose, began behaving in a provocative manner. Fans of them boarded trains, trams, searched the passengers, and, if they had C&T membership cards in their pockets, tore them up and stamped on them. This led to scuffles with armed anarchists, and one or two people were killed. Very soon, however, the assault guards dropped their conquering air and relations became more friendly. It was noticeable that most of them had picked up a girl after a day or two. The Barcelona fighting had given the Valencia government the long-wanted excuse to assume fuller control of Catalonia. The workers' militias were to be broken up and distributed among the popular army. The Spanish Republican flag was flying over Barcelona, the first time I'd seen it, I think, except over a fascist trench. In the working-class quarters, the barricades were being pulled down rather fragmentarily, for it was a lot easier to build a barricade than to put the stones back. Outside, the PSUC buildings and the barricades were allowed to remain standing, and indeed many were standing as late as June. The civil guards were still occupying strategic points. Huge seizures of arms were being made from CNT strongholds, though I have no doubt a good many escaped seizure. La Bataille was still appearing, but it was censored until the front page was almost completely blank. The PSUC papers were uncensored and were publishing inflammatory articles demanding the suppression of the POUM. The POUM was declared to be a disguised fascist organization, and a cartoon representing the POUM as a figure slipping off a mask marked with a hammering sickle and revealing a hideous maniacal face marked with a swastika was being circulated all over the town by PSUC agents. Evidently, the official version of the Barcelona fighting was already fixed upon. It was to be represented as a fifth-column fascist rising engineered solely by the POUM. In the hotel, the horrible atmosphere of suspicion and hostility had grown worse now that the fighting was over. In the face of the accusations that were being flung about, it was impossible to remain neutral. The posts were working again, the foreign communist papers were beginning to arrive, and their accounts of the fighting were not only violently partisan, but, of course, wildly inaccurate as to the facts. 
I think some of the communists in the spot who had seen what was actually happening were dismayed by the interpretation that was being put upon events, but naturally they had to stick to their own side. A communist friend approached me once again and asked me whether I would not transfer into the international column. I was rather surprised. Your papers are saying I'm a fascist, I said. Surely I should be politically suspect coming from the POUM. Oh, that doesn't matter. After all, you were only acting under orders. I had to tell him that after this affair, I could not join any communist-controlled unit. Sooner or later, it might mean being used against the Spanish working class. One could not tell when this kind of thing would break out again, and if I had to use my rifle at all in such an affair, I would use it on the side of the working class, not against them. He was very decent about it. But from now on, the whole atmosphere was changed. You could not, as before, agree to differ and have drinks with a man who was supposedly your political opponent. There were some ugly wrangles in the hotel lounge. Meanwhile, the, jail the jails were already full and overflowing. After the fighting was over, the anarchists had, of course, released their prisoners, but the civil guards had not released theirs, and most of them were thrown into prison and kept there without trial, in many cases for months on end. As usual, completely innocent people were being arrested owing to police bungling. I mentioned earlier that Douglas Thompson was wounded about the beginning of April. Afterwards, we had lost touch with him, as usually happened when a man was wounded, for wounded men were frequently moved from one hospital to another. Actually, he was at Tarragona Hospital, and was sent back to Barcelona about the time when the fighting started. On the Tuesday morning I met him in the street, considerably bewildered by the firing that was going on all around. He asked the question everyone was asking. What the devil is this all about? I explained as well as I could. Thompson said promptly, I'm going to keep out of this. My arm's still bad. I shall go back to my hotel and stay there. He went back to his hotel, but unfortunately, how important it is in the street fighting to understand the local geography, it was a hotel in a part of this town controlled by civil guards. The place was raided and Thompson was arrested, flung into jail, and kept for eight days in a cell so full of people that nobody had room to lie down. There were many similar cases. Numerous foreigners with doubtful political records were on the run with the police on their track and in constant fear of denunciation. It was worse for the Italians and Germans who had no passports and were generally wanted by the secret police in their own countries. If they were arrested, they were liable to be deported to France, which might mean being sent back to Italy or Germany where God knew what horrors were waiting for them. One or two foreign women hurriedly regularized their position by marrying Spaniards. A German girl who had no papers at all dodged the police by posing for several days as a man's mistress. I remember the look of shame and misery on the poor girl's face when I accidentally bumped into her coming out of the man's bedroom. Of course, she was not his mistress, but no doubt she thought I thought she was. You had all the while a hateful feeling that someone hitherto your friend might be denouncing you to the secret police. The long nightmare of the fighting, the noise, the lack of food and sleep, the mingled strain and boredom of sitting on the roof and wondering whether in another minute I should be shot myself or be obliged to shoot somebody else had got my nerves on edge. It got to the point when every time a door banged, I grabbed for my pistol. On Saturday morning, there was an uproar of shots outside, and everyone cried out, It's starting again! I ran into the streets to find that it was only some assault guard shooting a mad dog. No one who was in Barcelona then or for months later will forget the horrible atmosphere produced by fear, suspicion, hatred, censored newspapers, crammed jails, and enormous food queues and prowling gangs of armed men. I've tried to give some idea of what it felt like to be in the middle of the Barcelona fighting, yet I do not suppose that I have succeeded in conveying much of the strangeness of that time. One of the things that stick in my mind when I look back is the casual contacts we made at the time, the sudden glimpses of non-combatants to whom the whole thing was simply a meaningless uproar, 
I remember the fashionably dressed woman I saw strolling down the Robles with a shopping basket over her arm and leading a white poodle, while the rifles cracked and roared a street or two away. It is conceivable that she was deaf. And the man I saw rushing across the completely empty Plaza de Catalina, brandishing a white handkerchief in each hand, and the large party of people, all dressed in black, who kept trying for about an hour to cross the Plaza de Catalina and always failing. Every time they emerged from the side street at the corner, the PSUC machine guns in the Hotel Cologne opened fire and drove them back. I don't know why, for they were completely unarmed. I have since thought that they may have been a funeral party, and the little man who acted as caretaker at the museum of the Polyrama, and who seemed to regard the whole affair as a social occasion. He was so pleased to have the English visiting him. The English were so simpatico, he said. He hoped we would all come and see him again when the trouble was over. As a matter of fact, I did go and see him, and the other little man, sheltering in a doorway, who jerked his head in a pleased manner toward the hell of firing that was coming over the Plaza de Cataluna, and said, as though remarking that it was a fine morning, So, we've got the 19th of July back again! And the people in the shoe shop who were mar- making my marching boots. I went there before the fighting, after it was over, and for a very few minutes again during the brief armistice on May 5th. It was an inexpensive shop, and the shop people were UGT and may have been PSUC members. At any rate, they were politically on the other side, and they knew that I was serving with the POUM. Yet their attitude was completely indifferent. Such a pity, this kind of thing, isn't it? And so bad for business. What a pity it doesn't stop. As though there wasn't enough of that kind of thing at the front, etc., etc. There must have been quantities of people, perhaps a majority of the inhabitants of Barcelona, who regarded the whole affair without a nicker of interest, or with no more interest than they would have felt in an air raid. In this chapter, I have described only my personal experiences. In the next chapter, I must discuss as best I can the larger issues. What actually happened, and with what results? What were the rights and wrongs of the affair, and who, if anyone, was responsible? So much political capital is made out of the Barcelona fighting that it is important to try and get a balanced view of it. An immense amount, enough to fill many books, has already been written on the subject, and I do not suppose I should exaggerate if I said that nine-tenths of it is untruthful. Nearly all the newspaper accounts published at the time were manufactured by journalists at a distance, and were not only inaccurate in their facts, but intentionally misleading. As usual, only one side of the question has been allowed to get to the wider public. Like everyone who was in Barcelona at the time, I saw only what was happening in my immediate neighborhood, but I saw and heard quite enough to be able to contradict many of the lies that have been circulated. As before, if you are not interested in political controversy and the mob of parties and sub-parties with their confusing names, rather like the names of generals in the Chinese war, please skip. It is a horrible thing to have to enter into details of inter-party polemics. It is like diving into a cesspool, but it is necessary to try and establish the truth so far as it is possible. This squalid brawl in a distant city is more important than might appear at first sight.